from uh, the scriptures in just a moment. Uh, and Jacob is going to come up and speak from Ephesians chapter 2, sentences 1 to 9. I'm going to read through that now, and it's going to come up on the screen for you as well. Uh, so this is from the book of Ephesians, where we're parked for these couple of weeks. Starting at sentence 1. It says, And you are dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. This is the word of God. Hey everyone, great to be here with you today. My name is Jacob, if we haven't met before. Um, hopefully we'll have a chance to later. And it's just great to see a whole bunch of people here as well for the first time, many of you whom I'm sure are here to support Kathleen and to celebrate with us today. And um, yeah, it's a bit of a different day, like Jess was saying. We don't do baptisms each and every week here at City Light. But, um, but it is something that Christians have been doing for thousands of years. This symbolic... I guess ceremonial thing, not unlike the way that like at a wedding people exchange kind of wedding rings, like doing a bit of a, a visible, physical thing to signify a reality that is actually very, very deep. So doing something in, in public terms that would otherwise be, I guess, hard to see with the eye. And the reality that we're celebrating or, or marking or signifying in a person's baptism is a person's salvation. Throughout the Bible, one of the, the main verbs that is used again and again to describe what happens when someone becomes a Christian is, is, the, wor- is the verb being saved, which begs the question, saved from what? What is it that people need to be saved from? The need to be saved isn't always um, necessarily obvious. Last year, I was on a holiday up in um, like North Queensland and went to the beach. And you think Queensland's good for beaches, so went to the beach. It's not the case in North Queensland. I'll, I'll tell you why in a minute. But I, I, went, to, I went to one of the beaches, and, I, and I've been going to beaches for a while. I know the rule of the beach. You swim between the red and yellow flags. That's kind of a basic right. But this beach had to be one of the flattest beaches I'd ever seen in my life. There was not a single wave in sight. It was shallow, just like indefinitely. You'd have trouble kind of getting to the point where you couldn't stand up. But smack bang in the middle of the beach was a little lifeguard tower and the red and yellow flags. And along the rest of the beach were signs with like a big no swimming. And I felt pretty like patronized by this. Um, I'm from Sydney. We've got actual waves. We've got rips, currents. We learn about these things. I know how to swim. And so I felt a little bit belittled that I was expected to go and go to this one like special part of the beach that everyone else was at and to swim in there. But I did the right thing. I did the red and yellow flags. I got in the water. I tried to go to the point where I could actually like not touch the ground, so I got a little bit far out. When all of a sudden, a siren started going off, and the lifeguard comes down, he's like waving on the beach, and I'm like, so I'll head back into shore, start cruising in. I notice my wife has just been like, doing these ones to me as well. Um, And so I'm like, I'll I'll go in. I was like, look, what's what's the hassle here? Everything's pretty calm. And that's when I found out 
there was a float of saltwater crocodiles. A float, that's the collective noun for crocodiles, by the way. I had to Google that. That was about 50 meters from where I was. Now, my wife says this morning there was only one crocodile. I remember it being multiple crocodiles. You'll have to take one of our, one of our words over the other. But all of a sudden, it's like, okay, wow, this, that's, that's pretty serious. I've never swum like, near a crocodile before. The lifeguard, the lifesaver, was suddenly a valid thing. We actually went back to the same beach the next day, and, and, and there was a bunch of ambulances there, and a person had been stung by a jellyfish that paralyzes you. I'm like, all right, North Queensland beaches, one out of ten tops. And I know we've got some people here from North Queensland, actually, but don't rate your beaches. But so, it's not always obvious why you would need to be saved. And when it comes to, I guess, spiritual salvation, I think that's even more so the case. Because the sort of salvation that we're celebrating at baptism isn't a, isn't a physical thing. It is something that is happening really beneath the surface. In one of the Gospels of Jesus, famously, when a rich young man comes to Jesus and he asks the question, what must I do to be saved? He's not talking about any imminent physical danger. When Paul, in the book of Acts, in a chapter we looked at a couple of weeks ago, says, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, he's not making a statement about how someone could get themselves from, away from being caught in a rip or, or, or lost in a cave or anything like that. He's talking about a deep spiritual reality. And so today, as we're doing baptisms, we're continuing this two-week mini-break that we're doing from the book of Acts to look at a passage that, perhaps better than in any other part of the Bible, attempts to put into words the nature of this salvation that is at the heart of Christianity. It's from a letter written to a church in Ephesus by the Apostle Paul, which a couple of weeks ago we, we saw that in the book of Acts, how Paul went to this place, Ephesus, begun a church there, and then moved on. And he's now writing back a number of years later to encourage the church. And what he's doing in this particular passage that Jez just read is reminding them of the nature of their salvation. And so it's fitting for us just to even just to reflect on the fact that Paul thinks it's important to remind people of how they've been saved. So even if you're here this morning and you're not getting baptized, as most of us aren't, to be reminded if we've experienced salvation at some point in our life, to be reminded of the significance of that. But I think it's also a helpful passage if you're someone who is here and you would struggle to really, I guess, articulate what it is that Christians believe about salvation or, or really what is it that Christians are on about or, or, or making such a big deal about. Hopefully this is a helpful passage to at least understand from the Bible's perspective what the heart of Christianity is. And so the way we're going to go through this, these short, um, I guess, nine verses or so, is to break into just three chunks, which is talking about what are we saved from, what are we saved to, and what are we saved through. So hopefully pretty straightforward. So I'm just going to pray now, and just a, a short prayer, just to ask that God would be speaking to us as we look at his word. So if you would, just pray with me. Heavenly Father, we just ask as we look at these words penned by the Apostle Paul and as we think about what he is trying to say, what he is trying to help the people in Ephesus and now us understand through these words, that you would illuminate these words for us. That you would help us be aware of what is happening on a deep soul spiritual level that we might otherwise be blind to. Help us see things we wouldn't ordinarily see and understand things that we couldn't understand on our own. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So firstly, what, what are we saved from? That's the first thing we see in this passage. Is really a, a few lines really describing why we need to be saved. And this is where we're going to spend most of our time this morning. 
Um, and so keep that in mind because this is a longer point and when we get to the end of it, you're going to be like, oh gosh, we're going to be here for another hour. That's not what's happening. But it's a bit longer but, and I think it's important It's because the significance of being saved is only as significant as what you're saved from. Being saved from floating in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean after a plane crash is a magnitude greater than being saved from a hedge maze, maze you got lost in and you can't find your way out of. To understand the gravity of salvation, we need to understand the gravity of our plight. And so we're just going to take this line by line as Paul really just tries hard with a whole bunch of kind of words and ideas to describe the gravity of our problem. So look at the first line here. It opens this section where Paul says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Just the first four words of this sentence describe everything that's about to come in this section. And you were dead. Dead. It's an absolute term that Paul is choosing here to describe our condition. Life and death isn't a spectrum. It's an either or. You can't be 70% dead, but that is what he says, dead. He doesn't say dying. He doesn't say in danger of death. He says dead. That's the diagnosis that he offers. And this isn't just some off-the-cuff, flippant, lazy analogy that he's using. He's intentional about choosing the ultimate bad diagnosis, the final untreatable state, when healing and recovery are off the table. It's a condition just as stark and untreatable today as it was 2,000 years ago. A condition that brings to mind anyone who has experienced it around them a sense of complete and utter helplessness. It is a heavy condition. And of course, he's not speaking about physical death here because he describes those who are dead as walking, walking in trespasses and sin. It's a spiritual death. That it's possible to be physically alive and animated and functioning, but to be inwardly, spiritually, soul dead. And so he continues then to describe what this deadness looks like. And, he, and he, the way he describes it is to talk about, talk about it in terms of the soul's complete capitulation to what St. Thomas Aquinas described as the three enemies of the soul. These three forces from within and without that, that put our souls into a state of deadness. The world, the devil, and the flesh. These realities that, that stop us from experiencing spiritual life. And he describes each of these here. The next line, first he talks about the world. He says, in this state of deadness, we were following the course of this world. World in, in the New Testament writing can mean a few things. Sometimes it means how we often use it today, like the world, or just like shorthand for just saying everything. But particularly when it's been spoken of in the Bible in reference to, I guess, sinfulness or, or salvation, it's talking about the accepted ideas, values, and social norms of mainstream culture that are set in a position of rebellion towards God. And, I'm, and the first mark of spiritual deadness is to be caught up in following that course. Following what has been decided by the world around us as the way to go. And what is, what is normal or what is considered to be normal is a really powerful thing. I think most of us would like to think of ourselves as pretty kind of rational, free-thinking people that make all of our own decisions. And that all of our ideas and our preferences and our beliefs are, are our own. But more than I think any of us would like to admit, our lives are formed and influenced by the world around us. 
We see this in terms of the things that I think the most kind of rapidly shift and change in terms of kind of what is fashionable, what clothes are in, what music is cool. And they have these huge shifts decade by decade. But time and time again, people seem to unite together in fitting with the, in with the crown and going with what is, what is said is that's the way to go. Even people who aren't really conformist, so if you go to King Street in Newtown and walk down, you'll find all the individuals who aren't confined by what the rest of society wants to wear or look like who, funnily enough, have all decided that the same way to not conform is to have the exact same outfits and haircuts as each other. The biggest influence it's been shown in a bunch of studies on, on your health is where you live. That if you really want to get in, into shape, one of the best things you could do would meet, be to move somewhere like Bondi Beach and you'll just find yourself naturally eating protein bowls and doing push-ups. Or if you want to let yourself go, you can move to America. Now, <laughs> we, have, we have a bunch of ex-members from Seelard over in the States. Some of them listen to the podcast Maybe they won't anymore after this, I don't know. <laughs> but Paul's point here is that the culture around us influences us. And it influences us more on just the levels of our appearance or our health that the culture that we're swimming in, what we see on TV, what we consume on the internet, in books and music and podcasts, shapes our values and our beliefs and our entire structure of thinking about the world. And in our secular world that we're living in, with the perceived absence of a God, the world around us even shapes and frames our moral compass so that we can be accustomed to not even recognizing good from evil, to be able to tell apart moral beauty from moral ugliness, to end up despising what is truly lovely and loving what is despicable. And that is a helpless state to be in. This is what Paul describes as a state of death, to be following the course of a world who is set on rejecting God and living without him. It's like throwing yourself into a river that is a mile deep and a mile wide, flowing with megatons of water towards a precipice. That is the first force leading to the death of the soul. The second is the devil. Or in Paul's words in the next line, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Paul's saying it's not just the physical world that we find ourselves in with which we have to contend, but there is this non-physical dimension that is, that is leading to our state of deadness. He describes a being that is elsewhere described as, as Satan, the devil, the accuser, the dragon. Here he describes him as the prince of the power of the air. That is a leader not of a, of a physical dimension, but, a, but an airy, spiritual one. The one whom all people in the, in the disobedience we've inherited has been following since the beginning of time. And I'm aware that if you're not a religious person, I guess this point might seem a lot more far-fetched than the last one. Like, it's not that controversial to say that what you see on TV is going to shape who you are and, and the decisions you make. But it's more controversial to say that our lives are in fact influenced and shaped by an invisible dark force that we can't see. And yet this is the explanation that the Bible gives for what is otherwise quite a bewildering question of why is there so much evil in the world? How is it that people can so just blatantly pursue things that are just so wrong, cause so much harm and so much pain? The Bible would say that there is a spiritual reality there is a devil who does not seek the thriving happiness and joy of humanity, but seeks its ruin, seeks its death. And the devil can achieve this ruin in people's lives without even people realizing that he is there. C.S. Lewis, who wrote um, 
the Narnia books that most people will be familiar with, also wrote a, it's a fantastic book called The Screwtape Letters, in which he just imagines a world in which a senior demon is writing to his apprentice, Wormwood, helping him bring about ruin in this person who's been assigned to. And there's one passage where, like, it's all very fictional, but he, he, he writes on the question of whether this demon should, be, should make himself known. And this is what this senior demon says. He says, You asked me whether it is essential to keep the patient in ignorance of your own existence. Our policy for the moment is to conceal ourselves. I do not think you'll have much difficulty in keeping the patient in the dark. The fact that devils are predominantly comic figures in the modern imagination will help you. If any faint suspicion of your existence begins to arise in his mind, suggest to him a picture of something in red tights and persuade him that since he cannot believe in that, he cannot believe in you. It's pretty easy to just not believe in this kind of childish notion of a little red man with a kind of pitchfork and horns and that kind of thing. But that is not what Paul is writing about. He's writing about the source of evil in this world. And the danger of this force in the devil to, to corrupt our souls, to tempt us, to twist our lives away from what is good. That is the second force that Paul describes in this description of deadness. The next line, though, he comes to the third, which is the flesh. He says, In the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. He's pointing to the fact that our problem, our deepest problem, isn't merely that there is a world around us, that is causing us grief, nor is that there is a, a spiritual dimension um, of the devil. But we've got a problem inside of us. Our very own desires lead us in a state of death. He's not talking about physical flesh and the fleshly desires like you know, natural desires to drink water or eat food or breathe oxygen. Often when the Bible uses this language of flesh, it's talking about not the physical over the spiritual, but the, the corrupted desires over those which are good. We find within ourselves desires that do not lead to our good or to what is good. Desires on their own are good things. The desire to have relationships, to have rest, to eat, even to have sex are good. But desires can become corrupted and turned to the extreme where desires can become lust or greed or envy or even to the point of full-blown addiction. But the other thing that he's talking about with these fleshly desires is, is when desires become disordered. When we want things, not just the wrong amount, but in the wrong order. Like, is it okay to love your career? Like, of course it is. But is it okay to love your career more than your children? Most of us would say not. And the Bible says that the most disordered of our desires is that we desire so many more things more than what should be the most desirable being in the universe, namely God himself. We desire things ahead of God. So as we're working through these verses, we're starting to build a picture. We need saving because we're dead, i.e. walking in sin, which is summed up as choosing to go along with the ways of this world, um, following and, and being influenced by this dark spiritual reality and forming our values and, and loves in the, in the wrong order and having desires that we give in to and obey because they're the strongest things in our life. And then comes the kicker, this last line of the section, where he says, And you were, by nature, children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Paul is saying all mankind, every person, because of this state of affairs, because of this, 
this list of, of issues which we have within ourselves is in a position of under God's wrath or his judgment. That because we are not the way we should be in the world, it's not the way it should be. God's right judgment is upon it. It is such a, a bleak description, this whole thing, isn't it? I hope you're getting a sense of that. It's like you just want to move on from this section because just again and again and again, just these words and these ideas that are not pleasant, they're not nice. But I think it's important to kind of have a, a sense of this picture and, and the gravity of it and the bigness of it and just how serious it is because that's what shows the miracle of salvation. Salvation isn't a mild intervention in someone's life. It is a dramatic necessity. So what we're going to be seeing in this next section is then what we are saved to. And it's against that backdrop that this is going to make sense. Look what Paul writes next. He's finished describing what we are saved from and begins to describe what we are saved to. From verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Isn't just such a contrast to everything we've just read? The polar opposite of what we've just read. Going from objects of wrath to being treated with love, with great love, to being shown the immeasurable riches of grace and kindness. From being trapped by the power of this world and the devil and our fleshly desires in death to being raised and seated with Jesus in the heavenly world. From death to life. That is the reality of what happens when someone is saved. Becoming a Christian isn't like just joining, taking up a new hobby or a bit of a lifestyle shift like becoming a minimalist or you know, being environmentally conscious and not using plastic bags. It's not like a minor change like that. It's not even just an outward change of like cutting out vices and the bad things that we do and starting hanging out with kind of weirdos and singing songs and, and becoming a bit awkward like that either which I think a lot of people think is what it is. It's not even just on the scale of going from someone who's got their life not together at all and everything's a bit of a mess to pulling it together, kind of getting in control of life and getting, getting, getting things happening. No, it's spiritual death to spiritual life. It's being made alive for the first time. And what Paul says here is, he's, is, is that you were raised up to heaven with Christ. And he's pointing to a part of the Christian story that we typically remember, I think, most often at Easter, where we hear about how it is that Jesus was killed and was dead in every sense of the word. He was physically dead, having bled out and breathed his life on a cross during an execution, but also dead in the sense that on that cross he took God's anger and wrath and took upon himself our state of spiritual deadness. And then from that death was raised to life. It's the greatest miracle in the Bible that the dead can now live, that Jesus rose from the grave. And what Paul is saying is that this is what happens in conversion, that we are raised to new life. That's what we symbolize in baptism today. Uh, we symbolize a, a state of death in, 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 as, as we go under the water and as Kathleen goes into the water. 
And then if all goes to plan, Kathleen won't stay under the water, but she'll come out again, symbolizing that she didn't stay down in her state of death. But just as Jesus rose from death, so too she is risen with him into spiritual life and ultimately into everlasting physical life. This is the reality of every person who has been saved from death to life. And so the final thing that I guess Paul would have us know is we know what we've been saved from, we know what we've been saved to, but what are we saved through? How does that salvation come about? How is it that a person can go from death to life? This is what Paul explains in verse 8 and verse 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work so that no one may boast. It is by grace you have been saved through faith. These two words that, that sum up what this is all about, grace and faith. Firstly, grace is this word that is describing an undeserved gift. The nature of the salvation that, that Christians hold to is one that is undeserved. The reason that someone can go from a state of spiritual death to spiritual life is not because they deserve it. It's not based on merit. There isn't a grid in which people are assessed on their intelligence or their performance or their charisma or their beauty or their wealth or anything else that makes them worthy of this change. It is in every way an undeserved gift. Earlier this year, when I'm sure you remember the story when the, the submarine, submarine went missing, searching for the people that were searching for the Titanic. And it was a huge news story, obviously, and, and a huge amount of resources went into, in those early days, a, a rescue mission to go and find these people and rescue them. Um, which was, a, and, and, you know, which is all well and good. If I was on a submarine, I would want to be rescued. But one, one of the things that was, I guess, most controversial about this is that on this submarine, where there were six, I think it was six billionaires, that very same week, 500 migrants drowned off the coast of Greece. And that was met with significantly less news coverage and, and, and resources for a rescue. And it raised the question in a lot of people's minds, are some people worth more to save? Are some people more deserving or, or, or merit more effort to save them? And financially, obviously they are. If you want to be set for life, save the life of a billionaire. Follow them around and look for an opportunity to save them and it'll probably go pretty well for you. But the Bible is really clear. That's not how God's salvation works. God doesn't pick and choose the ones who deserve it the most, no, but that all grace is a free gift. It is unearned. It's not earned by wealth or any other outward thing, but it's also not earned in terms of anything inward. Moral uprightness, spiritual performance, religious obedience. Salvation isn't for the morally upright. It is just as freely available to the morally bankrupt. A lifetime of charitable donations, church attendance and good deeds no more prepares you for salvation than a life of crime and greed and selfishness. Because salvation is by grace. And it's grace through faith. The road to, from death to life to experience this grace is through the door of faith. And faith, I guess, is best summed up as the way you experience this gift of grace. It's the act of, of believing or trusting 
or I think even maybe more helpfully of, of seeing or of knowing the reality of God's grace and God's love. Of being able to see and believe and hold on to the reality that Jesus died in your place. That even though you are sinful and broken and in desperate need and deserving of judgment, that he died for you. And the moment you see that and believe that, that grace is yours. And even that act of seeing and believing is a gift of grace. It is something God does in your life. And for different people, this comes about in different ways. You might not remember a time in your life where you just didn't believe this, where you didn't have this faith that God has done this in your life in a, in a work even before your memories were formed. For others, it's, it's more of a gradual process, one that's filled with, with questioning and, and investigating and agonizing and umming and ahhing and, and trying to really just decide, is this true? To the point where at some point in that journey, you realize, yes, it is. You believe this. You hold on to it. There, that Jesus is real, he is God, and in him there is life. For others, it comes in a moment, perhaps in a moment of crisis or a moment of, of rock bottom, or in a moment that's just in what would otherwise be considered a very ordinary day, in which something comes about that makes it feel like the scales have come off your eyes, it's where something rings true, where you have a sense of God's reality, his nearness, and his love washing over you, and you believe. And in that moment, you're alive. Whether it's a gradual process, an instant process, something that happens when you're a kid, something that happens when you're an adult, when God shows you his grace, gives you that faith, you are alive. And even if in that moment that feels like it's a you thing, you coming to a decision, ultimately with the benefit of hindsight and looking back, it becomes clear that it wasn't us searching for God, it was God searching for us. That he intervened in our life to save us. Or in Paul's words, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not by work so that no one may boast. Paul is clear, this salvation is not our own doing, it is God. That is why we celebrate it, because he has done it for us. And it excludes all boasting. It is wild that Christians can get the reputation at times for being judgmental or holier than thou, or, or looking down on people, or just proud, because if you understand the salvation, there is no room for that. If you head out after church today and, and whip open your iPhone and hop onto Instagram and start scrolling, and in that absorption with your phone, you inadvertently step in the path of a, of a truck and everything goes black, and then you wake up in a hospital and you are told that you got hit hard, your heart stopped, but some passers-by rushed and performed CPR on you until the ambulance arrived. And then, despite the significance of your injuries, the, the, the paramedics managed to stop the bleeding and get you to a hospital. And at that hospital, a team of surgeons labored day and night and were able to save you due to a donor who had even given, who enabled them to put a new heart in you. And despite all of the odds, you are now expected to make a full recovery. If you hear that upon waking, you don't wake up you don't jump up and say, yeah, baby, I'm stronger than a truck. There's no keeping me down. I must be some kind of superhero. That's not what you do, is it? That doesn't work at all in that situation. Fair enough if like, a truck hits you and it bounces off. <laughs> but, and if, or if you stitch yourself up or anything like that. But in that reality, when you are saved by no effort of your own, you are left with really only two things you can, I guess, feel. The first is humility. 
It's the recognition, firstly, particularly in that story, you're at fault, you're stuffed up, you're fallible, you're capable of losing your life because of your preference for some small thing. And because of your error and your guilt, others have had to take on the cost, have had to put in their effort to save you. You're left humbled. But you're also left with a sense of gratitude, aren't you? Gratitude that because of the selfless and costly actions of others, your story hasn't played out the way that it should have. And you've been given the greatest gift of all. This is the gospel. All of our efforts to save ourselves are in vain. We cannot do it. Yet in Jesus, we can be saved and we can be made alive. That is the reality that we celebrate week in, week out here at church. We celebrate that reality every time we do communion. We celebrate that reality every time we sing a song. We celebrate that reality just by getting together in this family that is joined by this common reality. But today we we celebrate in a particular way for one person, for Kathleen, as we go down to the Oval and down to the water soon and we baptize her to reflect on the amazing work that God has done. And it's a chance for the rest of us who aren't getting baptized to reflect on and celebrate what God has done for us in our lives in the way that he has done it. It's celebratory. And maybe you've not been baptized, but you feel that you've, you know, in some, at some point, maybe recently, maybe some time ago, you've experienced this salvation and you haven't had a chance to declare that. I'd encourage you to consider, like Kathleen has, to be baptized. Either down the track or if you want to, and you've still got an hour, get in the water today. We'll, we'll do some more baptisms down there. But it is a great thing to be able to mark, to signify, to, to show outwardly what God has done for us inwardly. But as well, maybe there's someone here who just, it doesn't resonate with you to be able to describe yourself as having an experience of salvation. I just want you to know that this could be a description of you. That God can make you alive in an instant. That even up until this point in your life, you may have been spiritually dead, for want of a better term. That even though you are living and functioning and thriving, perhaps even in a whole bunch of parts of your life, that you know of yourself that you aren't alive spiritually. You you can see in yourself that you are in fact led every which way just by what the world has decided around you. That you are aware within yourself a disposition towards, towards evil and what is wrong even by your own standards. You're aware of the strength of desires that you've got that just are not right. There is a gift for you that can be grabbed hold of. There is this offer of grace through faith that leads to life. And if that is something that you desire for yourself, that may be God beginning to work in you now. That God, on his time frame in your life, might be opening your eyes to the reality that you need to be made alive. That unless that happens, you're missing something. You're experiencing only one aspect of life, this physical life, which is fleeting, which is temporary, which one day will end. But you're missing out on having your soul made new. I want you to know that if that is you, we would love to talk with you. We would love to help you and, 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 and guide you to understanding this reality. But it might be that you've already been down that path or right now it's just all making sense to you. We want you to know that even today you can grab hold of that reality. That you can believe 
and have the certainty of, of knowing that you have been brought to life. So what I'm going to do now, I'm just going to pray. I'm going to pray and just thank God for his work in salvation in the, for, for, for so many of us in this room that he has done that in. But as part of that prayer, I will just say, like for those of us who are here who are maybe feeling like we want that but don't have that, that there'll be a space to start to say to God, God, I need you. I need this reality. I'm not okay on my own, and I want this, and I want to, I want to believe in you. And so if that's something you want to pray with me, when we do that, you can pray along in your own mind. Come and speak to us after as well. But this reality of salvation is the greatest thing. This is what we're celebrating today. So let's finish our time by praying. Heavenly Father, Lord, I just want to thank you for what we've read about here in these, in these verses of just the reality of salvation, of how it is that you, have ta- you take people from death, consumed and following in the way of this world, under the power of the devil, slaves to our own flesh and by nature objects of your wrath. You take us from that to a, posi- to a place of life where we experience your mercy, your kindness, your grace and your love. And we know that we don't have to do anything to earn that. Lord, thank you for the way you've been at work. Thank you for the way you've been working in so many of our lives, over our lives, to bring us to a point where we can experience this life. Thank you for your work in Kathleen's life, that soon as we go on to celebrate her baptism, that is just a reminder of you as a good and loving and merciful and gracious God. Lord, I just pray for anyone who is here as well, Lord, that if there are some here who are, who are seeking, who are aware that something is not quite right, who are wanting to know more of you, Lord, I just ask that you would show yourself to them. Lord, I ask that you would open eyes, that you would grant the gift of faith, that they might be made new, made alive, that they might be able to see you and your goodness and your mercy and your love for them poured out on Jesus at the cross and believe. And Lord, we pray you continue to work. If you are opening eyes, we ask that you will continue to lead people to you, to know your goodness and your mercy and your grace. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.